Imagine a world with no cold calling. A world where companies don't sell your data to other companies who want to pester you. At G4 Claims, we don't cold call and we don't buy a single lead from data companies. Oh, and if you're due any compensation from your car accident, you pay nothing to us at all. For full accident management support, including motor replacement, repairs and personal injury compensation claims, just search G4 Claims today for help the way you want it. Uh, hi and welcome to this week's episode of the DW Podcast. I am joined by Scottish writer Craig Robertson. Thanks very much for coming on, Craig. Thanks for having me, Derek. Good to see you. How are you getting on? All good. Uh, strange times, obviously, but uh, yeah, all good right now. We were talking just before we started recording there that uh, this weekend would have been uh, one of your festivals, you know, flagship festivals in, in Stirling, but unfortunately it's all going online. Yes, Bloody Scotland Festival would have been this weekend. Uh, and yeah, we're all a bit gutted that we can't actually meet and uh, go to the pub together, which is the main thing. Um, we're having the festival online. Um, it's going to be great. It means we can be seen by more people. Uh, I think there's like 4,000 people signed up to watch on Saturday. But you miss that vibe of just being together in the same place. But we will make the best of it. That's amazing, 4,000 people, though. Yeah, that's brilliant. It's great. It means that people... Um, We've got a lot of people watching from America that might not go over before. We've had a lot of people that do come over, but not in, not in those kind of numbers. So it opens up the world to us, really. Of course. And, and was it uh, an easy choice when you were thinking about destination, Stirling? It's, I suppose, for tourists. We've been, well. in, Stirling, we've been in Stirling from year one. Uh, it, it was quite an easy choice, I think, in the end, because it's quite central. Um, and if you go in Glasgow or Edinburgh, they already have book festivals, and you, you're up against more stuff. Yeah. Um, so Stirling's worked out fine and uh, people, it's my hometown, so it, it works for me. I don't have to do any travelling. Uh, but people have enjoyed coming here and it's it's good. That's a great, it's a great place as well, isn't it? And I suppose people are so used to going to Glasgow and Edinburgh and they take for granted, I think, that Stirling's just up the road. It's what a fantastic and, place. And even just in practical terms, you know, the hotels are cheaper and for us the rent places are, are cheaper than they would be in Glasgow or Edinburgh. So all these things come into it. And for those that are watching or listening to this, Craig, that maybe don't know a bit about yourself, I don't know where they've been hiding for the past 30 years or so. Uh, but yeah, obviously you, you started your, your career in journalism, now a Scottish crime writer. Uh, tell us a bit about the, the early days then. You, you grew up in Stirling. When did you realise that you had a passion for writing and journalism? Ah, I think it all, it all came in kind of relatively late. Um, I've always enjoyed writing. Um, it goes back to uh, Mr Oliver's English class in third year when he told me that um, that w- I was a natural writing. And I think, well, I say I think, I know that my thought process at that point was, well, if I'm a natural at it, I won't have to try very hard. <laughs> and so that that was type of, I'll do that then. If it doesn't require much work, then I'm going to have a go at that. But I've always enjoyed writing. Um, I didn't really get into, I didn't get into journalism until I was 27. Right, okay. Um, so I... I'd had a couple of years, a couple of years of being unemployed and just grabbing around trying to get what I could and doing a bit of freelance writing. But I went to journalism at DC Thompson at 27 and did 21 years there. That's phenomenal, eh? Yeah, mostly at the Sunday Post. Um, it was a long time, but looking back on it, I enjoyed almost all of it. Um, not so much the last few years. I'd kind of done my time and wanted out. But yeah, ended up doing a lot of stuff. I just wouldn't have done in any other job. 
what was your what was your first steps into journalism? Because I know we'll surely go into it, but some of the you know some of the things that you covered over the years from the the nine eleven terrorist attack, you know, Dunblane, Madeline McCann, etc. I believe yep. you may have been one of the first to interview Susan Boyle as well. <laughs> yeah, I, I yeah, I ended up um, it was just after Susan Boyle started out, and uh, I got sent around to her house in Broxburn, and the front door was open, and there was a TV crew had been in, and I just thought, well, there's nobody here. I'm just going. I'm not breaking into the woman's house. I'm just going to go and see if she's there, and she's in her kitchen making a cup of tea, and got a bit of surprise. But the house was full of other people. I have to point out. Um, and then we did we did an interview, so that was fun. Um, fight, okay. I, she just thought I was another member of the TV crew, so it, it was okay. It was okay. Um, I started out in a, an internal training course in, in DC Thompson, and it just kind of went from there. I don't suppose I thought it was going to lead to some of the things it did, and but journalism gives you the chance to travel the world and, and do lots of odd things and go to strange places, and yeah, it was all fun. Or most of it was fun. Was it was it when you first go into journalism, do you find it's hard to, you know, get your stories on the front page or, or get, you know, the, the coverage that you want to get for your story? It's more, you know, you go to DC Thompson and they'll say this is what you're covering this week rather than you saying, I think this is interesting. I'm gonna It's a bit of both. Um you can come up with your own stuff's always the best way to do it. If you can find a story and convince them that they've no choice but to cover it. And obviously that's more difficult at the beginning because you need to build up contacts. Uh and but then they have to also learn to trust you to go and cover. If they've got a story they need to cover, uh, you have to go and do it. Um, I'd only been a journalist for, I think it was less than three years. Um, and they sent me to do a one-to-one interview with John Major when he was prime minister, just like a month before the election. And I was thinking, why the fuck are you giving this to me? Surely, <laughs> surely there's everybody else in holiday. But, you know, you grab it with both hands and you go and do it. And it's a bit nerve-wracking to begin with. But yeah, the bigger stories tend to come along a little bit later. Um, they need to trust that you can do stuff. If you're getting sent off to another country and the whole thing's on your shoulders and they need to know you can pressure's on. Yeah. yeah. What was it like interviewing John Major then so early in your career? Because I believe yeah. that you've interviewed three prime ministers in total since then, you know, but that's the uh, I can't, Yeah, I've interviewed, I interviewed John Major, Gordon Brown, and Margaret Thatcher, also was in company of Tony Blair a couple of times, met him a few times, but not uh, a full-on interview. Sure. Uh, John Major was interesting. He was actually a lot of fun to speak to. Um, we sat down and he, it'd been the Tory conference and he'd asked how I thought the speech went and I said, well, you know, the Tory members seemed to like it. I'd have been surprised if they had it. And he just laughed. And he gave this huge laugh. Now, I was taping it. I just got a new tape recorder, a digital recorder from my wife for my birthday. And this was the first time I'd used it. So I put it down. And also, like most men, I don't read instructions. I just sort of fiddle with it until it's gone. So I recorded the interview. And in that one, this is pre-devolution, I think it's 1992. And the big thing was that the, the Tories had won in Scotland three times in a row. And Scotland had voted Labour. So I'd said to him, if that same thing happens again, you get back in down the street with Scotland voted uh, Labour, would you consider devolution? And he said, give me a really careful answer about there's sometimes you might have to consider that route. And I thought, well, this is good because he's not really gone that far before. Did the whole interview. I only had something like seven minutes one to one. So you have to really cram things in. 
went back to the office, turned on my new digital recorder, and there was nothing on it except I'm laughing at the beginning. Oh, was the only good. thing that's on the recorder. Because what I had well to check was it was volume activated. Right. So you set that, and it'll only record, record things above a certain volume. So I've got him laughing and nothing else. And at that very minute, my editor phoned and said, how'd the interview go? Oh, heart sank. So I said, I just bluffed it. Now, if it had been a couple of years later, even, I would have held my hands up and said, right, well, there's been a problem. But they'd entrusted me with this interview. So I said, oh, no, it was great. It was really good. They said, all right, we'll put it on the front page then. Oh, no. But I had to get this bit completely right about whether he'd committed himself to devolution or not. Um, and I tried to phone, I knew the Tories had recorded it, so I tried to phone them, but they were in the air flying back to London, and by the time they landed, our first edition would have gone. So I, I remembered that as best I could. Um, I can honestly say that only once in my career I've ever made up a quote, and that was from <laughs> a prime minister. But I still thought, I still thought I'll, I'll get away with this, because yeah. it's only the Sunday Post, nobody will notice. And the next day, on the front page of the, the Herald, was a headline saying uh, major hints of devolution and in the middle of it is the quote that I've oh, largely okay. made up in big bold letters. Mm. So that was a, a nervy week waiting to get called up on that. So I think I did my bit. I like to think I did my bit to bring devolution about. <laughs> and did anything come off the back of that? Did the did the Tories ever get in touch and say that's they didn't. No. They didn't. So either I got close enough or there was no backlash against the quote, so it was okay. But every time the phone rang that week, I thought that probably speaks volumes about yourself because some people would just crumble, wouldn't they? They wouldn't know what to write. They would... Oh, I did crumble, absolutely. <laughs> but I remembered most of it. And I hadn't really taken notes. Uh, but thankfully, I've got a decent memory and that got me through it, I think. That's... But I would, not, I would not recommend that to anybody. What, what a story, eh? Uh, it could have, it could have been so much worse. But, how, how, did, how did Major compare to the likes of Thatcher? Because obviously up here in, in Scotland, you know, there's many things that you could say about uh, Margaret Thatcher over the yeah, years. He, he, was was quite approachable. Approachable. he was quite approachable. Um, uh, she wasn't quite so approachable. Yeah. Um, she wouldn't brook any kind of uh, disagreement when she said she would just like steamroller over you. And um, yeah, what you saw on TV from Thatcher was what you got. And I don't know. And I press one at one as well. So, uh, yeah, wouldn't say she was my favourite person. Oh, don't worry, I, I'm from Motherwell myself. <laughs> you don't need to hold back in that front. But no, I'm not. Actually, I, no, I mean, I, I wouldn't go. You remember that a lot of people played the Elvis Costello song of uh, <laughs> Tram the Duck Down. Yeah. I played it once or twice. So. <laughs> it's interesting because obviously you, you see these clips off her previously on the, on the television and you know, you, you, I've listened to her speeches previously and, and she just seems like, as you says, you know, what, what she says she, she gets and it's, I can't imagine that she'd be very approachable in an interview. No, um, actually, there was a party line, uh, there was her line and that was it, you know, and I mean, it, I didn't get lectured, but you've seen TV clips for lecturing journalists about what they should be doing, you know, um, what was it she said after her grand was like, and it would rejoice, you know, when they were complaining, you know, saying, how do you feel about all these men drowning? Rejoice. So, yeah, it's it's Indeed. almost a different breed though from from you know Thatcher and even Mayor, uh, Major sorry up until you know the likes today of of Trump you know and and even closer to home Boris Johnson isn't it? It seems like yeah. back then they were a bit more polished. We're, we're in a different world altogether. We're on the other side of the mirror, uh, and the closer we get back, 
it's some kind of normality in that front the better. Um, yeah, I don't know how long we're going to be stuck with those two clients for, but uh, hopefully not too long. <laughs> what was uh, is there any highlights, Craig? You know, from your time at the Sunday Post, you were obviously there for over twenty years, and uh, I've heard some great stories from one of your colleagues, you, and that says you know you had some great times playing five aside and down the pub, etc. But and, and <laughs> Yeah, we, I mean, it wasn't all playing by the side to be down the pub, but looking back, there seemed to be a lot of that. Um, Saturday nights were great. So we would go, obviously, live on a Saturday night for a Sunday paper, and we would slog our guts out for a good few hours, right up to the wire all the time, we'd get the first position out. We'd then have to make loads of changes, get the second position out, you know, with things changing around us, and then we'd try and get another. And that was, in many ways, the best out of the week. You know, as many of us as we could manage, depending on circumstances, we get down the pub and take a breath, and it, you know it was great. It was a really good bonding thing as well because you'd all been just on the cold face, and then just get away for a wee while. But uh, highlights. I mean, I was lucky enough. I, I travelled a lot. Um, went to the US quite a bit, across Europe and Ireland. Uh, went to India, which was an amazing uh, thing. I went on a a trip with a Rotary who were. And there's campaigns to and uh, collect people against polio in, in India. And I spent a week going around uh, Delhi and uh, up into the north. And we would give polio drops. I mean, I gave a polio drop to a two-week-old baby okay. uh, in a, in a, a backseat um, of this dusty copper town. And it was an amazing feeling. You know, you don't, people don't get to do that kind of thing very often. Um, and you actually felt like we were doing some good. You know, we were really doing something worthwhile. Um, I mean, it wouldn't have, it would have been the same if I'd been there or not been there. But I knew you feel like you're you're doing something worthwhile. You know, you're, we went to hospitals and saw the effects of polio, which certainly at that time was absolutely rife uh, still, and some of the deformities caused by it were horrendous. And, but India was uh, an astonishing place, and to go away from the, the tourist trails and see the real parts of India are a real eye-opener. So that would certainly count as a highlight. I think that's something that people don't take into consideration. You know, if, if people from Scotland are going to India, it's, it's to do the touristy things, isn't it? It's to very much stay in the, the major cities. And, you know, as you uh, said, you're making... We went up to, we took a trip, my photographer, uh, Richie and I, we went up to Agra, to uh, Taj Mahal. And I hated it. I absolutely hated the Taj Mahal. Um, just... Partly the opulence of it, and, and but just the sheer touristiness. Um, I, I was not impressed by it. Also, the worst toilets um, ever encountered by man. So yeah, I wasn't a fan of that. India, I loved, but but not the touristy bits. When uh, also you know you mentioned traveling there, would that be right in saying that you, you spent some time on death row in America? Not yeah. not, not personally. You didn't. Not personally, um, no. There's been plenty of people who thought I maybe should have done, but <laughs> no, it was part. Of the, it was, it was way back now. It was 2004. Sure. Um, it was one of these things, it was a week that kind of summed up being the Sunday Post. Because less than a week earlier, I'd been in Aberdeen doing a story on it was a training shoe called an MBT, which um, they were these really heavy sole things. And the idea was they, they made you fitter because it was tougher to walk in them and they made you walk more upright. So it was a stupid story where they wouldn't sell you them off the rack. You had to be taught how to walk in them. And so I went up to Aberdeen to do this really dumb feature. And less than a week later, I was on death row in Ohio, <laughs> uh, interviewing Kenny Ritchie, yeah. who the Scotland spent 
20 years in death row. And yeah, yeah, that was something that I hope not, to say the least. So you go through two different sets of security to get in from the main prison then to death row. And it is a bit like the silence of lambs, you're walking past you know, cells that people are in for 23 hours a day. Uh, and when they took us in, it was myself, the deputy governor, an armed guard, standing there holding a rifle, uh, and a photographer that I tired locally, and they bring Kenny Ritchie in, hands, manacled, legs chained together, orange jumpsuit with a blue stripe down the side, and the blue stripe means he's going to be executed. And that's the real stop here in the tracks going out. Okay, this has been sort of fun so far, but it was um, it wasn't an easy interview to say the least. Uh, he wasn't in a very good mood, and you know, bad being locked up twenty three hours a day for twenty well, years. I probably wouldn't have been a very good mood either. And he didn't really want to talk, but I think in total, I'd, I'd, I was given an hour to do it, and that that was the maximum. But after I'd gotten talking, he started giving me some stuff, and I'd asked him what he wanted to happen next and he says I want him to kill me I want him to kill me or set me free and I thought okay that's a good line I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm solid with that and we tried a bit more and so we'd been no more than 20 minutes in the interview and he starts talking about his dental treatment because um, he had work done that he wasn't happy with me why don't we redo and the deputy governor says to me turn off your tape recorder which thankfully worked this time um, <laughs> You checked said, before you started. I made sure this time it was going to work. Um, and I, he said to Ken Ritchie, you know you've been told you're not allowed to talk about the end of the treatment. If you keep talking about it, the interview's finished. So right. I'm like, shut up. Puts the tape back on. He starts going on about the yeah. dental cell. The deputy governor says, that's it. Interview finished. And they literally dragged him, kicking the steam out of the cell. Two guards dragged him out. And I'm like, fuck. <laughs> I've just travelled. 5,000 miles. Um, so I said to him, look, can you get him back in? I've come a long way. Yeah, I can't go home with only 15 minutes worth of interview. Um, so he said, look, we'll send us a guard along. If he's calmed down, he can come back. And the guard comes back and goes, no way. He's, you know, he's, he's off in one. So that was that. 15 minutes or 20 minutes ago. But I got enough that the head and kill me or send me three, gave me a front page lead. Yeah. Um, BBC in London used it in the Monday morning. So Amazing. I got enough, but yeah, it, that's kind of the way it is sometimes. Why do I say you're fast? How did that come about, Craig? How do you set something like that up? You know, is it two months? Um, uh, a friend of mine and, and of, uh, of, of you and Adam, he, he dealt with Kenny over a number of years and done, I think, email interviews. And there was, uh, oh, my mind's gone blank. There was a woman actually in Lancashire who uh, corresponded with Kenny, was running the campaign. Karen, Karen Torley, thank goodness I remember. Um, so she helped as well. And I, Adam didn't want to go and do this, um, but I was up for it. And I contacted the governor and we had to go through loads of hoops, sign all sorts of forms and promise to do this and not do that. Um, and it took, I think, maybe four months, maybe five. Uh, and then it ended up lasting for 15 minutes. So, <laughs> but it was enough. And you got what you needed, yeah, ultimately. Got what I needed. Um, and it was an experience, yeah, to say the least. What was it like going through there when you, as you said, you know, these people are locked up 23 hours a day. Is it terrifying? Um, it's not terrifying because you know they're behind bars, but you're aware of it. And to say that, I, I, no, I was very much aware that I, I would not want to be in here 
on my own. Um, yeah, I've watched too many movies. Um, but they're, it's adrenaline rushing as well, you know. You, that's all happening at the same time. Uh, and it's part of the reason I think a lot of us go into journalists to do that kind of stuff. Yep. Um, and it's a challenge. And there's a nervousness about it, not working, you're not getting the story, but that's all part of what keeps it interesting. What was your, your thoughts behind leaving the paper then? Was it more your, your writing to take away? Uh, was... It, it was quite easy. It was quite easy in the end up. I said I was there for 21 years. Um, about five years before I left, I realised it was time to get out. Um, I'd done most of the things I wanted to do. Plus, the writing was on the wall. You know, Unfortunately, by the time I did leave, there was lots of redundancies, not just in Sunday Post, but across the board. Yeah. You know, jobs were getting cut left, right, and centre. I could see it coming. And I figured my best chance of getting out was to write a book. I had no idea if I was actually able to do that, but I was going to give that a go. Um, so I started about five years before the book came out. Um, and I gave up on it a bunch of times. So at least three times I gave up completely, just settled for it being a pile of shite and it would never get anywhere. Um, I eventually managed to finish it. And so maybe. This would be 2009. Um, I got an agent. Agent within a few weeks had a few publishers want to buy it and bring it against each other. The book came out in April the first, uh, April Fool's Day, 2010, and I left in October 2010. Right. So for that point, I finished my second book. For that for that point, and had a deal to write another two books. So I promised, if I was ever going to take the chance, I had to be there. So it was time and there was more redundancies coming. I grabbed one of those and said, right, I'm off yeah. to write books. That's fantastic. I, I've never regretted it, I have to say. Um, it's, it was the right thing to do. Um, it was taking a bit of a gamble, but not too much of one. Craig, do you feel that your, your background helped you, you know, get an agent? Uh, we, we, I previously had Graham Armstrong, who's a young Scottish writer, on the podcast, and he says that I think he, he sent his book out to about 249 people before he actually got a yes, you know. Uh, do you think the background helped, helped you get an in almost? I think so. I, th- I suspect um, agents are maybe more likely to pick something up. They, I think they know if they get something from a journalist, it's probably going to be well enough written. It's probably everything's going to then turn up on time because we're used to working with deadlines. Yeah. Um, and, and they know that publish can sell it a wee bit in office and authenticity. Although, you know, my first book was about a serial killer and I had no first-hand experience <laughs> of that. But I think it definitely helps get a wee bit higher up the pile and get it read a bit quicker. Your first book was obviously uh, random, you know, and it was uh, fantastic. You know, it's, it's probably one of your most successful to date, if, if not the successful, most successful. And uh, Do you think that your, your journalistic background allowed you to write that? You know, it's a, a crime novel based in Glasgow. Did, did you ever touch on any of the stories that you'd seen in person or reported on? That No, I, I try to keep that out. There's a couple of, there's always things um, that I've, you gain experience as you go along in any kind of lifestyle and any kind of job. So with journalism, probably more of that. I think maybe the things that I brought into it more were how people react to, to being in the middle of crimes and, and really serious situations. Um, in my later years in the post, I sort of became the go-to person if something terrible happened. So they sent me to New York. I went to New York after 9-11, went to Oma after the bombing, things like that. And you end up and actually speaking to families who, who've lost loved ones in a really high profile way. So I became friends with a, a family 
in North Carolina whose son was on the first jet that went into the Twin Towers. And I went over and spent time in their house and interviewed them. And a lot of that kind of thing fed into it. And also a father who lost his son in Noma bombing. And a father whose daughter died in Dublin. And, and some of their experiences were similar in that these were not to them high-profile uh, killings or, or, or events. And they weren't public ones. They were very personal ones. So he lost his daughter. They lost their son. And they didn't really want to share that with anyone else. And so that kind of reaction feeds into, into books and like the way victims' families react to things. You know, that kind of thing you pick up on. Yeah. I, I didn't do too much of real-life crimes and situations. Well, I've done wee bits more since. Um, some people find their way in the books in small ways. But, you know, I don't always admit to who they are. So. <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting that you touched on, you know, the... Uh, Dunblane and, and 9-11 because you, you must see that these things firsthand and it does it ever affect you personally or, or can you remove yourself from that as a, a journalist or a writer? Um, it's a bit of both. Uh, the, the trick is to remove yourself from it and try and compartmentalise it to get yourself through it. Dunblane was one of the hardest ones for sure um, because I'm from Stirling, it's only five miles away. Yeah. Um, that week was that so that week um this, I was number two in the office. I'd left about three weeks before it. Um, so I got promoted to number two in the office and the boss was off that week. Yeah. And it was the first week I'd ever been in charge. And, and, and that happened. And I went out to Dunblane along with a bunch of others. Uh, and the days were, the days in one sense were kind of easy. Right? And I, I very much that's inverted commas because you're doing your job and you go on with it and you speak to people. But getting home, your legs just go away from under you and you think, what have I been through? And also, at that point, my mother was a teacher for a primary one class, which is the class that Hamilton had, had killed. And her school was about 400 yards from Hamilton's house. So I had all that kind of what might have happened put on my head as well. So I think to do that kind of thing properly, it's a fine line. You have to emotionally connect with the job and with the people you're talking to but not so much that it stops you doing your job. So it's a fine line. And, but the bottom line of that is always, it's much harder for the people involved than it is for you. Yeah. You know, they've lost loved ones. We're just having a tough week. Yeah, I think, I think it's, you know, to, to hear that these people opened the door to you and, and, and welcomed you as well, certainly the family from North Carolina after, after yeah. 9-11, it, it probably speaks about yourself, you know, that you're a very likeable person and a, an honest and trustworthy person. But I think, you know, there, there must be times where journalists, the families are just thinking, you know, I want you as far away as possible. So, um, I, I think with the, the 9-11 one, I, I, I went around the houses a bit to try. So this family, uh, part of uh, their story was that their son, Carlton, his wife had told them the day before 9-11 that she was expecting their second child. He told them one day and the next day he died in that flight. So because of that, uh, all the media in America wanted to talk to them. Oprah Winfrey had tried to get them on the show and they refused. Thankfully, I didn't know that or I might not have tried. Um, I kind of tracked them down by going to the local area and I found uh, the church that they went to and I went to the pastor of the church and said to, to him, I'd like to speak to them. If you think they would not have anything to do with it or I shouldn't speak to them, I'll leave it at that. 
But if you think that maybe they'd want to talk and I'll let them see everything I'm going to write, uh, I'll never, I'm not going to put anything in they don't want. And he went to them, they agreed on that basis to speak to me. Uh, I flew over. And I, yeah, I flew most of the day and I got to their place way out in the country about maybe 10 at night. And the idea is I was going to stay in their place and we talk in the morning. But we sat down and just got talking over their kitchen table. I think till about two in the morning and uh, it all just came flooding out. And it's a bit of a privilege really to be in somebody's life and them doing, opening up like that to you. Because it, it came obvious really quickly that not only had they not told the press some of this stuff, they hadn't told it to each other. You know, they were saying things like, well, I didn't know you did that that day. I didn't know that's how you reacted. So very much a position of privilege and you can't abuse that. If you abuse that, nobody talks to you again. Yeah. So you, you really have to do it right. But on the other side of that, I was in Oma. Uh, so the bombing happened on a Saturday and the following Saturday, I was, I'd been there for a couple of days, but I was in the hotel on Oma High Street right next to where the bombing took place. I'm sitting with uh, three or it might be four uh, local women who went to that pub hotel every Saturday night as a group, except one of them was missing because she died in the before. She died in the bombing. And a few journalists from other places joined us, uh, particularly a guy from, I'm not sure I ever knew his name. Um, if I did, I wouldn't say it, but he was from the Daily Mail. And he'd had a couple of drinks, but no excuse. He said, he said to me, leaning over the table kind of loudly, I don't understand why they're all so upset. I was at Dumblane and it was much worse than this. So insensitive, isn't it? I probably should have punched him in the face there and then, but I was so shocked that, and, and this is in front of the families, Craig. That's in front of the yes. This is in front of people who've just lost a, one of their best friends. Um, so, if you take that kind of beauty to your work, I don't think you should be doing it. Um, but each to their own. It's uh, I'll, I'll not hark back in too many old podcasts, but I, I done an interview previously with Amanda Knox, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I remember watching the documentary beforehand on on Netflix about Amanda's story, and there was a Daily Mail journalist there as well, and he came across terrible in it. <laughs> and I, I don't know if that's a recurring theme with the, the Daily Mail. Or it might be, but I know lots of Daily Mail journalists who are perfectly good. I have people and great journalists, so it's not all of them. Yeah. But, yeah. But, you know, it, it is interesting how people can be so insensitive. And I wonder if it's because they've been to so many of these, you know, traumatising events and, you know, really prominent events in history that it just becomes a bit normalised to them. There is that. There is a case that you get desensitised to it. <clears throat> There's also a case that. You don't, but you pretend you do, and you're kind of whistling through the, the graveyard. There's always loads of black humour in journalism, in the same way as there is in the emergency services. You know, cops and ambulance drivers are the same. And it's, it's, a, it's a defence mechanism in getting through it. You're pretending you think, this is all right, I'm having a laugh. Inside, you think, you know, this is horrendous. You have to find a way of dealing with it. Um, and there's also a bit of machismo going on that's not needed, but happens. Do, do you ever keep in touch with the people that you've spoke to afterwards, for example, you know, the, the family over in America who, who opened up over the table? Yeah, they, uh, I think maybe about a year after that, they came over and stayed in my house. Um, they came over to visit um, Scotland. They spent the first week in and around Stirling and they stayed in, stayed in our house. Um, I've been back over since, oh, well, maybe three years ago now. Um, stayed with, back in the same place in the woods in North Carolina. And we, yeah, we kept in touch over the years and... Initially, 
we kept in touch because we knew there would be other stories. Because nine eleven was a very much an ongoing thing for a long time. But also, you just develop close bonds. If you if you get that close emotionally with somebody when you open up, then you tend to stick, you know. And so that's happened. Yeah, yeah we've got a few families. That's really interesting, isn't it? Because at, at first they must be quite wary of you, and it's it's great to see that you've still got that relationship there, and you are a human being. You're not there just to take advantage of a story, so to speak. Yeah, well, I think any, I, I wouldn't want to do that anyway. I generally wouldn't. But also, you only cut your nose off to spite your face because nobody talks to you again. I remember we did uh, did a series. Oh God, I think it must have lasted three years, maybe even five, um, raising money to buy. Uh, to build new uh, children's hospice. Um, so I did tons of interviews at Robin House with families whose children were not going to grow up into, into adults. And they were always obviously incredibly difficult. Um, but you, you would be very sensitive about them and you had to be. And I remember going to see a family in Glasgow uh, whose wee boy was, I think he was about seven. Um, and he went to special school, but he obviously was not going to have any kind of value of life, really. But the whole time I was there, he was laughing and giggling nonstop. And, and that's the way I wrote it. And I wrote it, he went in the house and he's laughing and he's laughing. And I thought, his mum wanted to see it before it went in because she didn't want me writing what she would like. And that was fair enough. And I'd left a copy of it downstairs at uh, the front desk of the office and she came in to see it. And I got a call saying, Mrs. Wants to, wants to speak to you. Shit. Oh, oh no, what's going on? And I come down and she's in tears. Christ. <laughs> and she rubs, rushes over and hugs me. She says, thank you, thank you for doing it that way. Because um, that is a way it's in our house. We're not all misery all the time. He laughs and he enjoys himself. A, I wouldn't want to get it wrong. And, yeah. You know, so I think it, to do the right thing pays off more often than not. Um, have you ever had the opposite, Craig? Has there ever been any any really negative experiences where you've you know you felt terrible afterwards, or you've? Yeah, um, the worst one, or certainly the first one that comes to mind. I wrote a story about court death. Um, there was some uh, possible great to I think it was a, a team in Edinburgh, Edinburgh University, or might have been a possible great to uh, turned out not to be uh, on court death. And they'd said, and, and so immediately you're in dodgy ground. Yeah. Um, but they said that, if, and in the meantime, until this works, it was a, some change to the matrix, if, if I remember rightly. You should follow the, 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 the guidelines, which is to make sure the baby lies on his back and not in the stomach and blah, blah, blah. Sure. And I knew that. I knew that was the guidelines. So I wrote the story, and for whatever reason, I got it the wrong way around. And I wrote, baby should be placed on its front and not on its back. Yeah. And nobody noticed, and I never noticed, and it ran that way, and all hell broke loose. Um, uh, maybe before you time, um, good morning, Victor's uh, TV presenter, Anne Diamond. Uh, she was like the queen of daytime TV. Right. She had a huge show at 10 in the morning on BBC One, but she'd lost two children herself through court death. Oh, dear. And my advice was completely wrong. Um, by Monday morning, the phone was ringing off the hook. Uh, people, women in tears and thinking they'd done it wrong or furious that I'd got the advice wrong. And I, they are, Monday's our day off and uh, I got phone to 
to be told this. And I said, right, I'll come in and answer the phones because you shouldn't have to do this. Oh, and they were like, no, you cannot answer the phones. Okay, I'll rip it spread. Spread rag to a builder. Oh, and then on the Tuesday morning, Anne Diamond held up the paper, uh, demanded that I be sacked and that the, the paper be... Uh, it, it wasn't it wasn't a good time. Um, my paper Z at the time went and did gold out, called on lots of favours from every newspaper across the country to give us a free advert saying this is what it should be. Regardless of what we said, it's this. We're sorry. I'm an idiot. And Diamond then came back on on I think maybe the Thursday. Thanked us for doing all the changes. But yeah, I genuinely lived in fear for a long time that. You know, some kid would die, and it would be my fault. That's how bad that was. That's um, and it, it was it was horrible. You know, but that's the risks of getting something read by a million people. You know that, mm-hmm. and also just potentially for fucking up is always there. Not to make excuses as well, <laughs> like, but it is such a simple mistake to make with such a you know important thing. You know, it's yeah. Transpose two words. Um, and now what's happened since is the advice has actually turned around and now some people are suggesting maybe she's sleep the other way. You were a pioneer, Craig. You were a pioneer. You would have had to do with it. <laughs> but yeah, and that, was, that was a rough week. Yeah. Did you ever think about throwing the towel in at that point or did you? Yeah, I, well, I thought they might have given me any choice. <laughs> uh, they might just take the towel and hit me over the head with a struggle with it. Um, yeah, but you've just got to get, get on with it, you know. Um, if you, if you make huge mistakes in other jobs, chances are nobody noticing. You know, but if you do it in a newspaper, it's a, so many people see it. Uh, well, so you can't take it back. You know, you can't pretend you didn't do it. It's there in black and white. Um, the other time, another time I messed up, which didn't have such potential dire consequences. Um, I'd been up to Wallach on a Wednesday night with my brother and my mate down at Kilmarnock. Washington Kilmarnock played Dungeon United. And it was one of those wet Wednesday nights in Kilmarnock. And at halftime, we went and got a pie. As you know, the killing pies, you know, the heel on end And at that point, it came in a wee uh, cardboard sleeve. And it said uh, on it, best Scotch beef from Wales. And I thought, what? <laughs> yeah, That's ridiculous. So I, and also, I thought, right, I'm, I'm going to get a line out of this for the paper. And there was, I had a column, still do, called um, As We See It column. And it's just little nuggets, two or three pars. So I wrote this mock indignation, best Scotch beef from Wales. That's ridiculous. Ayrshire, <laughs> full of cattle, wildly burning. So by, I think, by uh, one o'clock on Sunday, they had something like 150, 200 phone calls. We <laughs> pointing out that it's best Scotch beef from Wales because Mr. Wales was a local butcher. Oh, you're joking. <laughs> I'm not joking. A guy called Jimmy Wales was a butcher, and he, at that point, uh, made the killing pie. That's brilliant. And, and so I was never allowed to knock that one down. Um, he, I had to do an interview with Jimmy Wales later in the week. <laughs> and he said, oh, all these people coming in the shotgun and you see what the idiots in the Sunday Post are doing. But listen, I mean, for people outside the sort of Kilmarnock, that's, that's understandable. Yeah, but it was a lesson, you know, check, always check, regardless how small the story is, um, always check it. I came into work and, uh, uh, yeah, there were some uh, four-man spies left on my desk. Well, while you're on the subject of food, I was going to bring it up, Craig, but you're a, a black pudding connoisseur, I believe. <laughs> I am a black pudding connoisseur. I, it came about kind of strangely. I mean, obviously, I, I love black pudding. That was the start of it. Um just love it. Um, and I then sort of took the 
corner, we've got further afield to take eat Black Green elsewhere because we tend to think of it as a Scottish thing and it just isn't. Right. Um, and so I've been, I've been to Clonakilty in Ireland, which is their main place for for uh, Black Green. Uh, I've been to Vienna. I've got a guy who's since become a friend, uh, Franz Dormeyer, who makes the last count. 60 odd different kinds of black pudding. Yeah, when he had shop, and uh, we made black pudding at five o'clock in the morning. He makes black pudding in a, a steel bath, stainless steel bath. <laughs> it goes in, you know, arms up in air and blood. And uh, yeah, it was good fun. And and I've been a judge at the World Black Pudding Championships in uh, Normandy. Normandy? It's a wee town called Mortaniel Kersh in Normandy. Yeah. And they have the World Black Pudding Championships every March. And I'd been once, and my friend Franz, and and the guy also, a French uh, judge that I know, uh, organised it. So I think in the end, four of us went over. I went over with three mates, and we we got a we it's quite a big company house next to next to nothing. Went in and we all got to be judges. Um, but it was great fun. It's just not something you do every day. Do you know what? I, I, I was stuck a black wind by the end of it. <laughs> I think I'm naive, you know, I actually thought it was a Scottish thing as well, you know, it's, I'd imagine no, there's a lot of people out there like It's that. completely different, but, you know, we all tend to think, oh, Stornoway Black Queen's uh, the best in the world, but it really isn't. I mean, it's great, but it's, no, my feeling that is always, you know the story where uh, John Lennon's asked, because uh, Paul McCartney used to play the drums as well, and Lennon was asked, is uh, Ringo Starr the best drummer in the world? And he yeah. said he isn't even the best drummer in the Beatles. <laughs> so I feel that way with Stormy but way Black Green. It's not the best in the world, it's not even the best in Scotland. But, but yeah. if anybody from Stormy is listening, it's wonderful. And please send me some. I'm going to put you on the spot, Craig. Where, where is the best in the world or the best that you've tried? Um, I, I love uh, Spanish uh, Murcia. Sure. Um, it's fantastic. There's... Um, Family knows uh, Cafe Andalus in Glasgow, a few of them. Um, they do a fantastic year uh, with Chutney. So go in there. Um, I'm not getting paid for this. Go in there. It's fantastic. And uh, the French do one. It's really simple as well. So love that. I find that fascinating. I'm, I'm going to have to swap up my black pudding. Every, everybody needs a hobby. <laughs> we touched on it, Craig. We touched on it. Then we went back on to uh, your, your journalistic career. Yes. Obviously, Random was the, the first book and it came out in 2010. 2010, yes. Five years almost in the making, but you know, it was it was a New York Times bestseller shortlisted for Crime. Oh, I, was, uh, I, I wish, no, it was a Sunday Times bestseller. Sunday Times, ah, right, okay. But, which was still way, way ahead of what I expected. So so that was great. And at least in Tom came in a bit of a rush. Yeah, it was, it was shortlisted for the, the John Casey, which is the debut, debut book of the year. Um, and it was long listed for Crime Nob of the Year. Don't win it. But it was great, you know, and it, it just took me into a completely new life. Um, and it's, it was a great thing, and it all kind of took me a bit by surprise. But, yeah, it's, it's been great. What's the nerves like before your first book gets published? Are you, you've obviously read it a million times by then, you know, over and over with a, a tooth comb, I suppose. Yeah, but... it's, it's different now. There's still an Emerson. There's still an Emerson now, so I've now nine books published. But certainly that first one, I think basically... I just didn't want anybody to read it. I wanted people to buy it. <laughs> so that would, I generally want to encourage people to buy it, don't read it. Buy it and put it in the cover then. Because it's like, it's like the tree falling in the forest with nobody hearing it, and that's fine. Um, so until it came out, maybe 
three or four people had read it, um, or certainly that I knew. And then you're there to be judged by everybody. Um, and it is, yeah, it's definitely scary. And that's still there to different extents. You're always really keen to hear that first review on it, um, hear what people say. And you're told to not read reviews, but I don't know an author that doesn't read reviews. Um, You want to know what people think. And thankfully, by and large, it's been good. Did did you worry at first, you know, like you're you're obviously putting yourself in the shoes of a serial killer? Do you think people might might judge me here? Oh, yeah, I got lots of that. I got lots of people judging me as being, well, you know, I certainly have the potential to be a serial killer. Um, (laughs) But I like to think we all have the potential to, to to do something, not maybe not quite that bad, but yeah, there's a, a lot of use of imagination. You know, you have to put yourself in the shoes of someone, and could I do this? How would I do it? Uh, and yeah, there's a there's a bit of leap of faith here to try and get that right. But you know, that goes with anybody who writes. Most books, the, the box under advice of writing about what you know doesn't really stand up. I don't think. Write about what you're interested in. Write about what what you think people are going to enjoy reading, uh, and what what you don't know. Learn about you know. Google the hell out of it. Do Do you like obviously? I think was it ninety percent of your books or so are, are based in Glasgow. But do, do you yeah. Glasgow because you're familiar with it, or obviously you're from Stirling originally, but you've spent many years in Glasgow. It's uh... yeah. I worked in Glasgow for nineteen years, maybe twenty years, uh, and I stayed there for part of that. Uh, I decided against Stirling. I just thought it was too small, especially if I'm going to have a serial killer book. That's not, it doesn't make any sense. Happen you know, it doesn't really happen in Glasgow that much, either, thankfully. Um, but it's unrealistic if I'm going to have a contingency for me in Stirling. Um, so I want to use Glasgow. It's also just a great place to write tribunals. Yeah. You know, there's so many things about the city just really works for it. All those stuff that are kind of cliche, you know, the the, the black humour and, and the kindness and the aggression, all that stuff are cliches, but it's also true. You know, and they just fit really well. And Glasgow's a city just works. So, uh, yeah, I think of the nine books, eight are set in Glasgow. I'm sure that, you know, it's every country in the world has, you know, fantastic crime writers, but Scotland's blessed with them, you know, from Val McDermott, Ian Rankin, yourself, you know, there's... There's loads for such a small country, and I, I wonder yeah. if there's something in, in the people of Scotland that just allows us to write about that type of topic. Or, I, I don't know what it is. Is what would you put it I down? I think there is. I, I think we we punch way above our weight, and there's so many uh, Scottish crime writers and doing it really well. But yeah, I think we we have a sort of natural storytelling background. But a lot of things that fit in crime novels, you know, that dark sense of humour, a, a bit of a morbid sense of reality. Um, Lots of those things fit into crime novels and we use them well. Um, Scotland's a good setting for it. But also, with people like Val and Ian going before us, it opens up the doors and it gives people confidence to think, well, yeah, I, can, I don't have to set a book in Los Angeles or New York. You know, I can set it here and write about what I know and write about the people I know about. So, and if you can, I think that's the way to do it. Yeah. I read the review a while back now, uh, Craig, but it was saying, you know, you've done for Glasgow what Ian done for Edinburgh. And I just thought, <laughs> it's, it's spot on, isn't it? It's, it's really accurate. Well, I, I'm very flattered by that review. Um, no, I certainly haven't done for Glasgow quite 
<laughs> Nobody's going to do what Ian did for Edinburgh. Um, if you've been to something like the Oxford Bar where Rebus drinks, he's done a lot for trade in there. Um, for me, it's the Station Bar, where, which was our local at the paper. That was the one we'd go to in the Saturday night. So that's the pub I use more than anything in my books. But it's it's not in the tourist room in the same way. I know people have gone after being booked, but uh, not quite as busy as the Oxford Bar. <laughs> I've got a bit to do and catch up in Ian yet. <laughs> I'm not putting any words in your mouth there. I'm not saying it's going to happen. <laughs> soon. It's uh, it's funny. Is, is there a competitive edge to it or are you all very supportive of each other? We spoke earlier about, you know, the book festival that was meant to be happening this weekend in Stirling and it, it seems from the outside looking in that Scottish offers are very supportive of each other, but... We are. We really are. Um, if, uh, so my latest book came out in June um, and on what happened in publication day there is what regular hams that other authors will retweet it, put it out again on Facebook, get private messages of, you know, of good luck and all the rest of it. And we are there. And we, obviously not in the last few months because of lockdown, but we spend a lot of time in each other's company, either at book events, um, one-off book events or at festivals. Uh, a bunch of the guys are in a, in a band together, fun-loving crime writers. Really? And, I never knew that. Uh, it's, they're great. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's I think half of them are Scottish. So it's Paul McDermott, Chris Brookmeyer, Doug Johnson, uh, Luca Vesti, Stuart Neville, and Mark Bellingham. Um, they are. Oh, they played all over the place. They, they played Glastonbury last year. You're joking. No, and it's uh, it was amazing. They're doing an event with them on Friday night. I'm going to interview the six of them, and it'll Brilliant. be some footage from Glastonbury. So it's great. Um, so there's a lot of we spend a lot of late nights together. Standard bars, occasionally talking about books, but certainly having a few beers, um, putting the world to rights. And we, I've been various book festivals in the US with, and there's lots of Scots there as well. So we all go on very well and support each other. It's, I'm not saying there's no backstabbing, but there's very, very little of it. I'm speaking to, to Chris in a few weeks, actually, so I'll need to bring that up to him. I was mainly going to talk about about writing, but I suppose we need to see what glass. Oh, no, def- definitely talk about this because A, he's a big music fan, um, yeah. huge music fan. Um, but he joined the band um, as a vocalist and then learned to play guitar. You're so, which is not the way it normally happens. No, but, so. so he's now played guitar on stage at Glastonbury, having joined the band as a vocalist. So That's I unbelievable. Mean, eh? It's wild. It, but they're all getting this... Um, Apart from Luca, who's only, I think, 36, we're all enjoying this uh, wonderful midlife crisis <laughs> of uh, going playing, playing gigs. And it's, they're absolutely loving it. Do you know thinking about bringing out a tambourine or maracas and getting involved, Craig? Uh, I would love to. Um, I have no musical talent whatsoever, but um, they do let me buy them drinks and carry the drinks on the stage for them. Uh, I've done, I tell you, I've done backing vocals a couple of times on uh, Sympathy for the Devil. Right. I've done some moves on, on stage, uh, I think maybe three times. Um, which is terrifying, <laughs> terrifying for me. I mean, I've spoke to quite a lot of bands on the on the podcast as well, and and I suppose something that they always say is, you know, you you've brought out that first album, and then you're you're bringing out the second album, and it's a bit of a challenge. Is that similar for writers? You know, when when you were bringing out Snapshot, which I believe was your second book, is that- yeah, Snapshot was number two. Yeah, it's undoubtedly that same fear because you know you've been lucky enough to do it once, and you're going to get away with it twice. Yeah. Um, and also there's a thing, certainly for me, I'm speaking to others, it's the same, that when you write your first book, 
you don't actually expect it to be published. You don't really expect anybody to believe in it. But for number two, I've got a deal for number two, and it's definitely coming out. Whatever I write, unless it's really terrible, it's going to get published. So there's a different pressure there because you're writing and knowing people are going to read it. Yeah. And you know, you know, random was a hit. So you, you need that you need a follow-up and the pressure was on to do that. So but pressure is a good thing, it concentrates the mind, but uh every author's got a bit of that going on. Yeah. What I find amazing though as well is is you know, it seems like since your your first one you brought a, a novel out nearly every single year. It must be must be non-stop. When when do you breathe? <laughs> Not too often. Uh, between that and Bloody Scotland, then I, I run a book festival in Butte as well, Butte Noir. So there's a lot of, takes up a lot of time. Actually, my my most recent one, Watch Him Die, came out in June, and that was two and a half years since the one before. And that's easily the longest gap. So that that was a while. Um, I started going on another book and gave up on it after about, I don't know, 30,000 words. And then came into this one, and there was delays. So that was a that was a long gap. I, I don't want to go that long again. It's 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 that long till I get paid again as well. So <laughs> as much as anything else, I need to keep keep them coming out. But luckily, there's no shortage. The ideas are still there. I've still got books lined up waiting to be written. Yeah, yeah. Um, I finished writing a book uh, two nights ago, uh, Sunday night, and I'm. As soon as the festival or the weekend's over, I think I'll be getting into another one. Brilliant. Do you do you have favourites or is it like your children you shouldn't really pick? Yeah, it really is like that. Um, although if, if pushed, um, most people do like some of their children over others. So uh, it's always the first one. It's always random and what I'm writing next. It's, it's the first one and the next one because I've probably already forgotten the book two books ago because my head's full of the one I've just written and the one I'm about to write. I, I can't keep too much in my head at one time. So if I end up doing interviews for, say, a book that came out three years ago, chances are the person's read it more recently than I have, and I can't remember too much of the details. <laughs> Still, I can't remember names, except the, my main characters. But there's books that I've done. I liked Murderabilia. Uh, it involved a ton of research that I really enjoyed. So it's about, murderability is a real thing. It's about people who collect items connected to murderers, usually serial killers. Yeah. And it's a thriving market of stuff you can buy. And I spent months researching this stuff and it was fascinating. Um, I probably ended up knowing more about it than was good for me. And I ended up buying some stuff as well. And it's Really? Eh? What did you buy? I bought, let me remember, I bought um, a handwritten letter by Ian Brady. The Moore's Murderer. Yeah, okay. I bought uh, there's a lot of stuff in the book about the Sharon Tate murders by the Manson family. And she lived at a house in Cielo Drive in LA, which eventually got bulldozed. Yeah. And I've got a piece of the fireplace in front of which he was murdered. Mm-hmm. And I've got a lock of Charles Manson's hair. Where, where do you purchase this stuff? What is There are specialist sites, and this is part of the doing it. So I had to learn about these sites and how you got into them. But I also wanted to know the process of buying them. And a wee bit going back to my journalism days, I wanted to know what it felt like for these things to come through the door and hold them. You know, what's it going to feel like to hold a letter that was written by by Brady? Yeah. And it's not like holding a letter written by anybody else. 
there is something undoubtedly different about it. Um, for one thing, his handwriting is incredibly neat. It's all absolutely on the line and neat and just. And I'm sure there are lots of people with neat handwriting who are not psychotics, but uh, sure as hell looked like it in his case. And yeah, there is a feeling he touched this. I'm holding this. Mm-hmm. Um, my wife's not too keen on having them in the house, so um, indeed she may have chucked them out when I wasn't looking. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I can imagine that there must be this almost ghostly feeling around it. This... There is, there is. I went to, I did an event in uh, California in Berkeley, which is just over the bay from San Francisco. And I was talking to people there about murderabilia. And I brought a rock out and said, I have this rock from the fireplace in Sailor Drive. Do you want to touch it? And the whole front row leaned back, went, no way, no way I'm touching that. And then I explained to them that it wasn't that, that actual rock from the fireplace that's in my house. I picked this one up in somebody's garden on the way to the event. I said, now do you want to touch it? And we're all like, well, yeah. Right. So I said, what's the difference? You know, they're both just a piece of rock, and now you're okay with it. So I want you to look at that thing. Why? What's the psychology of this being imbued with, for one of a better word, the evil that it came from? Yeah. Um, and they were okay touching just a piece of stone, but not the real thing. It's fascinating, isn't it? It's brilliant. Yeah. What, a, what an intriguing story. You mentioned, you know, your, your wife there, Craig. What, what is it about writers that seem to be attracted to other writers? Uh, well, we, <laughs> I think we met at a crime writing festival in Colorado Springs. Um, so there was opportunity, I guess, was where that came from. But also writing's uh, it's it's not like any other kind of job. And I think another writer understands that. So that there are might be hours you don't want to speak to anybody. You know, you just want to get your face into the laptop and write. Um, there's times where all you want to do is think. You know, you, you need a lot of thinking time and you get that. It also helps that certainly pre COVID. We would go to book festivals together, you know, all over the world, and that was great. So we could travel together. We've done tons of that, um, and the, we were in a cruise in the Caribbean in November because Alex was doing a, a working gig on a, a cruise ship. It right. took us to uh, Bermuda and uh, Puerto Rico. So the, you know, there are wee advantages from both of us doing this. That's the rock. Also, we just really help each other out. You know, having a sounding board you know, for ideas and things, it's great. And somebody else who knows how to kill people keeps you on your toes as well. <laughs> <laughs> You're sweating, constantly sweating. Oh, yeah, I'll sleep with one eye open. Would you ever write together? Mm. No. No, I think that would be recipe for divorce. Um, I couldn't do it. I think Alex probably could, but not with me. Um, I, I know how I want someone to be. And I'm not much one for compromising on it. So she was a scriptwriter before in Hollywood. So we'd work as part of a team. So she could do it, but I would just get pain in the ass. Um, and anybody who knows me knows that that's true. I suppose a lot of it as well is very personal, isn't it? You're putting your own words in there, yeah. It is. I think we could construct a story together. <clears throat> but when it came to actually putting the words down, I would want to do it and I wouldn't really want to mess with it. Not that Alex is at least a good writer as me, if not better. And so it's not that, it's just, it's my way of doing it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we can certainly knock the structure of the story together. But after that, I think you have to do it yourself. But that being said, um, Chris Brookmeyer and his wife Marissa, they write together as Ambrose Parry. Yeah. Um, they do it and they do not fall out, which is great. Nikki French is a husband and wife team. 
there's a few, but it's not for me. No. Yeah. No, no, it'd be a disaster. I mean, <laughs> because we live together and work together 24 hours a day, and particularly at the moment when we don't really go out, um, to then work together on the same piece as well, that, that's a risk not worth taking, I think. <laughs> <laughs> you care about the relationship too much, though? I, I care about the relationship much more than my writing, so yeah. <laughs> That's one that's going to be Are you still back and forward to America, Craig? Are you settled in Scotland? Well, America? no, we were back. We would normally be over there three, four times a year. Um, I think in total, normally spend it. I'd be over in California for about three months a year, yeah. um, which is great. Um, but we haven't been since March. We we literally had to rearrange flights and get out uh, of America in March. Um, we've just been to Venice two weeks before that when the coronavirus broke there. And we've gone to California Park to see Alice's mum and then they started cancelling flights. And it's like, right, we need to get, we need to get home. Yeah. And we haven't been able to go back since. So looking forward to getting back. But, you know, looking forward to the world being safe. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So that has to happen first, I think. And uh, I hope... Yeah, that... we spend a lot of time over there. And, and my last book was part set. So it's half set in Glasgow and half set in LA. Which I, I don't know I could have done a few years ago, but having spent a lot of time there and with artists, I helped, you know, tell me when I was going wrong. I felt I could do it this time. So I think it worked. And lots of people from LA have read it and haven't pointed out things have gone wrong. So hopefully that, that worked. Is that something you'd continue to do going forward? You're, you're away from Glasgow now. It's, it's not just. I think so. I think I'll probably do both. Um, the book that I've just finished is back in Glasgow, so it's completely set there. But well, I've got one uh, coming up that I might write set completely in LA. Um, but that's a, that's the next move, and I haven't quite decided it. Brilliant. Where can people uh, pick up your books if they've not done so already? Hopefully, they can pick them up in Waterstones. Um, there's been loads of problems, well, no, like everything else over over lockdown. Um, in if this is still in uh, September when the podcast comes out. It's on Watch and Dies on sale for the whole month of September at the price of 99 pence. Which is what's that actually? Is that on is that a, a digital version? Yeah, so it'll be on Kindle for an 89p, which obviously is quite cheap. Um, it doesn't always make me happy, but if more people read it because of that, then it's all good. But failing that, uh, Waterstones will have all of them or support your local independent bookshop if you can. Yeah, always do that. It's uh, it's funny that you mentioned Kindle there because I, I just can't do it. I, I'm a bit, uh, a bit old school for that. I like a physical book. But... I'm the same. The only difference would be if I'm travelling and you can't, you know what, you don't want to cram a bunch of books in your face and Kindle's great for that. Right. But I do prefer a physical book. But Kindle's got so many more people reading than wouldn't before. And that's a good thing. I don't care how people read them as long as they read. Have you done any audiobooks? Have you done them as audiobooks? Or? I, have, I haven't done them in, in the sense of me uh, narrating them, but I think five of the nine, six of the nine are out. Yeah. Um, I've had three different narrators. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's it's really odd to hear them. Um, perhaps because I hear them with my voice uh, <laughs> in my head. Um, so, it's, yeah, the audibles are there. Um, I, I find it difficult listening, but more and more people are, are doing audiobooks all the time. Uh-oh. Um so it's it's fun and getting a different narrator is always a wee bit nerve wracking as well. Um, because I don't I don't or haven't had a say in them. So it's um at one point 
probably shouldn't say this, but never mind. Um, <laughs> my first two that went audio, it was an Irish um, actor who was doing the narration and he did them in a Scottish accent. Is it poor? Um, and he, or to be more accurate, or less of, he did them a whole bunch of Scottish accents, sometimes <laughs> in the one page. He would go from the Highlands to Glasgow to Brigadoon within a few paragraphs. And I couldn't listen to it. You know, I think my publishers are in London, so they were going, what's the problem? It all sounds the same. I'm like, no, it really isn't all the same. His accent's all over the place. Mm-hmm. But he read it well, just in a whole different bunch of funny voices. That's a Scottish thing. We, we'll pick that up. But I'm sure if people are listening in California, or as you said, London, it might not be. Might yeah, it goes straight over their heads. They, they think we all, we all have one accent, and it's just not true. <laughs> Brilliant. Now, Craig, it's been an absolute pleasure, and, and thanks very much for your time, especially you know just now when we're, we're stuck at home. I'm sure you've got lots of writing to do, but really appreciate you taking the time to talk. That was fun, Derek. Thank you for having me on. Nice one. Uh, thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of the DW Podcast. If you've not done so, please like and subscribe. Uh, and go and check out Craig Robertson's books. Thanks.